So we're going to turn uh, to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, part of uh, John's vision. We'll read verses 1 to 14. Let's read and hear together God's Word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates And at the gates, twelve angels, and on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Amen. Revelation uh, 21, page 1041. We'll really be focusing in on uh, the first five verses of, uh, of the chapter. I wonder if the name Arthur Stace means anything to you. Uh, he died in 1967, having been a well-known figure in Sydney, Australia, but he was catapulted to global fame at the turn of the millennium. If you happen to be watching the fireworks over Sydney Harbour Bridge as the 31st of December 1999 gave way to the 1st of January 2000, uh, then at the end of the display there was left emblazoned across the bridge in massive neon letters one word. Here it is. Eternity. There it was. the the, The eyes of the world on it. Eternity. It's a tribute to Arthur Stace. Uh, Stace was born in 1885. He was raised by alcoholic parents, later taken into care. He became a thief as a young child. 
He was an alcoholic himself by his teens, and he went on to work as a lookout for gambling dens and a scout for his sister's brothels. He lived a miserable life, and then on the 6th of August, 1930, he heard a sermon and was instantly converted. He was 45 years old. Two years later, uh, he was struck by another sermon he heard, which was entitled, The Echoes of Eternity. And in that sermon, the preacher said this, eternity, eternity, I wish that I could sound or shout that word to everyone in the streets of Sydney. You've got to meet it. Where will you spend eternity? Well, that burrowed into Arthur Stace's brain and wouldn't leave him alone. The streets of Sydney needed to hear about eternity. And so, he took a piece of yellow chalk And he bent down to the ground, and on the pavement, he wrote the word. Arthur Stace was functionally illiterate. He could hardly write his own name. But somehow, he later said, the word eternity came out smoothly in a beautiful copper plate script. I couldn't understand it, and I still can't. For the next 35 years, Arthur Stace, until he was 80 years old, 82, I think, Arthur Stace got up at five o'clock in the morning, two days a week, and went into Sydney with a piece of yellow chalk and wrote the word eternity on every surface he could find. He wrote it on pavements, he wrote it on walls, he wrote it on signs, he just wrote it everywhere. Eternity, eternity, eternity. The streets of Sydney must hear. Um, This is uh, one of only two remaining examples. Uh, It was chalk, so they all washed away. Um, but this, is, this is, is held in the National Museum of Australia. That's uh, Arthur Stace's uh, handwriting. That's, that's how the word came out, this illiterate man. Um, at first, uh, as these words appeared, the city authorities and the police tried to find uh, Mr. Eternity, as it became known, um, uh, to put an end to this, this act of vandalism. Uh, but over time, it came to be a part of Sydney life. People would start to walk around if they came to it on the, on the pavement. They would walk around the edge so they didn't rub it out, and street cleaners would, would leave it uh, there in place. And it's estimated that over those 35 years, Arthur Stace wrote that word eternity somewhere in Sydney over half a million times. Hence, the, the lights on the bridge at the turn of the millennium have just become part of the culture of the city. Arthur Stace exulted in God's gift of eternal life to Him, and He longed for others to know it too. I hope that you can say that you do, hope that you can take as your own the closing words of the Creed that we read earlier on, I believe in the life everlasting. But what is maybe a little bit more difficult is to say exactly what you believe about the life everlasting. What kind of existence will it be? What do you think heaven will be like? What will it be like to live forever? And to some extent, we have to tread carefully here because the Bible tells us certain things about the nature of eternal life, but it doesn't by any means tell us all things. In fact, we're really just given glimpses of glory. And even what we are told is often in visionary language uh, or picture language that shouldn't be stretched too far or interpreted too woodenly or literally. Uh, I suspect one of the reasons we're um, only given glimpses is that the mind that we currently have simply could not conceive of what lies before us. I I kind of have this picture. I think our minds would just kind of explode or something if God put in there what what lies before us 
in the next life. But when we're given resurrection bodies made fit for glory, as we saw last time, we will no doubt receive resurrection minds made fit to experience uh, glory and to take it all in. For now, uh, we need to have the wisdom to content ourselves, to go as far as the Bible goes, and to go no further, to leave it at that and to trust that what God hasn't told us, we don't need to know. What can we say, though, about the life everlasting? What glimpses of glory have we been given for now? We're going to go back, uh, look at these opening verses of of Revelation 21. I'm going to just pick out a few simple things, uh, very straightforward. The first thing we discover here is that in the life everlasting, we will be given a perfect environment to live in forever. That's what verse 1 is telling us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Um, If you were with us last week, I was mentioning then the the two-stage future, uh, if you like, that that lies uh, before God's people who die before the return of Christ. If that happens to you, uh, then when when your body dies, it it will be laid to rest, but your spirit will go immediately to be with Christ in heaven. And that, that really is, I think, thoroughly impossible to imagine what kind of experience that will be because we, we can't imagine a disembodied experience. It's just um, beyond anything that we can conceive. But when Christ returns to earth in glory, our bodies will be renewed, raised, renewed, and restored to us. Only then will we know the complete experience of glorified humanity that will be ours forever. And at that time, the physical universe will not be destroyed, but will be renewed. In Romans 8, Paul speaks about the universe having been subjected to frustration so that the physical environment we live in is now no longer the perfect environment for human life that God designed it to be. If you remember, in the garden in Genesis, cursed is the ground because of you. God says to Adam, because of your sin, cursed is the ground. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. In some sense, the fall of man, human sin, not only affects our souls and spirits and bodies, which it does, it affects our whole environment, the whole cosmos. Our sinfulness has cosmic as well as personal consequences. Tsunamis and earthquakes were not part of God's original design for His creation. But although the universe is subject to frustration, says Paul, there is yet hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. He's saying that when men and women are fully and finally redeemed, the world itself will be fully and finally redeemed, renewed, recreated, reformed into an environment which is perfectly suited to eternal life. That, um, the expression, a new heaven and a new earth, don't, again, just be careful with that. It doesn't mean there will be a new place for God and a new place for us. It's not heaven and earth and that kind of um, two different places kind of thing. Um, it, it just means a new heaven and earth means a new universe, a new place to live, a new environment. And just as we saw last time that our resurrection bodies will have continuity and yet also discontinuity with what went before. So you'll be you, but you'll be transformed and glorified. You'll be more magnificent than you can possibly imagine. In the same way, there's good reason to believe that the universe itself will have continuity and discontinuity. There will be things that we recognize, but it will be so much more glorious than we've known. 
It's a, a, a lovely moment. If you know the Narnia stories, um, the end of the last battle, um, the various characters enter into a new land. They've, they've died, and, and, and they enter into a new land, which is like and yet unlike the Narnia they've known before. And, and one of them says this, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. So we'll be given a new environment to live in, and it will be perfect for us. Have you ever wondered what revelation, have you ever wondered what heaven has against the sea? You know, what, what's wrong with the sea? The, 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 the sea was no more, we're told in verse 1. Um, in ancient times, the Jewish people didn't like the sea. You know, you didn't flock to the beach on holiday weekends. The, the sea kind of stood for everything that was chaotic and dark and out of control and threatening and hostile. It made them feel uneasy and insecure. In the life everlasting, there is nothing to threaten God's people. All the powers of death and hell have been shattered forever. All that's left behind is an existence filled with security and peace and joy and freedom. An amazing hope, an amazing prospect. It's there before us, but as, with, as, as always happens with that kind of prospect in, in the Bible, it, it reaches back, doesn't it? It's not just, oh, that's interesting, that'll be there one day. It reaches back into now and impacts how we live now, how we feel now. Lights up our present. And, and in particular, let me say, there's never any sense in the Bible that because, uh, because all of this lies ahead of us, how we live now, even how we treat the world now, is any less important. In fact, quite the opposite. There, there, are, um, there are only three references, uh, three other references in the whole Bible to new heavens and new earth. Um, two are in Isaiah, which is where the expression really comes from. As with so much in Revelation, it reflects Isaiah. Um, uh, so there are two in Isaiah, but the only other New Testament reference to this phrase is in 2 Peter chapter 3. Just listen um, to what Peter says there. He says, according to God's promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. There you go. That's what we're waiting for. That's ahead of us. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish. It's happening. The, the, the future hope is reaching into the present and changing how we live today. Since you are waiting, be diligent now today to be found by God without spot or blemish, to obey Him, to follow Him, to serve Him. The prospect of a new environment perfectly suited to a life of joy-soaked righteousness should prompt us to begin to live now the life that we will fully live then. We just need to get practicing for what will be our life one day. A perfect environment to live in forever. Secondly, uh, in the life everlasting, we will be given a perfect community to live with forever. Just as when we speak of the church, we're not speaking about a building, but about a community of people. In the same way, where verse 2 refers to the holy city or the new Jerusalem uh, coming down out of heaven from God, that's not a reference to a place, but to a people. It's a reference to the church. What John is describing here 
is the eternal church of Christ gathered together in the presence of God. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Not the church going up into heaven, but at the end of time, God's people coming down out of heaven to a, to a renewed, a new heavens and a new earth. And so we're seeing here what God will one day do in and for His people. We, we've thought in the course of this series, of course, from the creed about what it means to say we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, and we believe in the communion of saints. Christians are not isolated individuals. Sometimes you'd think that. Sometimes the way that we, that we talk about faith, you'd think that when, when, when heaven comes, it's just going to be me and Jesus sitting there, you know, just, just having a nice chat. That's not a biblical picture of heaven at all. God has placed us in a community of His people, and that's not a temporary arrangement, because all who are eternally united to Christ are eternally united to one another. Now, um, I, I, hope, I hope you can say you're generally happy as you look around yourself um, to think, I'm, I'm going to be with these people forever, I hope generally. Um, but, but let's be honest, we're all sinners, aren't we? And sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes we get on each other's nerves. Put a whole bunch of sinners in one place, and sometimes we're going to bump up against each other. That's, that's what's going to happen. And so, churches are places that have tensions. Every church um, has things that mar and spoil our fellowship together. Sometimes we say or do things that hurt each other or that disappoint each other. That is life in a fallen world, even in the church. But the promise is that the community that God calls us to spend eternity in will be a perfected community. Paul says in Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy and to present her to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, but holy and without blemish. That was His purpose. We can't say that of the church today, can we? The church is not yet done with His work. We're not without blemish. Plenty of blemishes. But in the life everlasting, that purpose will be fully fulfilled. And here in Revelation 21 is the church, the bride of Christ, made spotlessly beautiful. She is adorned or beautifully dressed, says verse 2, the garment she wears is not of her own making, but is a gift from her husband. She is robed in the righteousness of Christ. Only in Him can she be pure. But look at this bride. Honestly, if you're, if you're married, if you're, a, if you're a married man, you can remember that day when you stood at the front of the church and you, you sneaked that look over your shoulder and you went, This, this, is, this is off the scale. Look at this bride. Look at what God has achieved in her by loving her, by, by, by giving Christ for her. See what the angel says in verse, to John in verse 9. I love this. You can, you can almost hear the kind of joy and the pride and the tremble in his voice. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. It's like, come, wait, wait till you see this. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. 
It's, it's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. John is just kind of he's bumping up against the limits of human language trying to describe the magnificence of this bride. She, she is, as she must be for her husband, perfectly and eternally pure. This is, this is the, the, the recreated, perfected community in which everything that mars the church is gone. Division is gone. Jealousy is gone. Compromise with sin is gone. Gossip, pettiness, pride, everything that spoils relationships, all of it gone. And all that's left is harmony and light and unending joy and, and, and togetherness and oneness, complete unity. This perfect bride is at one and the same time brilliant and dazzling like a, like a, a precious colored jewel and pure and clear as crystal and she shines. This is astonishing, is it not? This is talking about people. Okay, the church is people. And it says, she shines with the glory of God. Amazing thing to say. This is not an abstraction. It's not an idea. This is you and me. This is our brothers and sisters, all of us. This is who we will be. This is how great the gospel is. As God takes sinners, helpless, lost, dead in sin, and makes them into this, makes them shine with his own glory. And we do so together in community, the whole of the church. It's a lovely picture. I don't know if you um, got that as we went through verses 12 to 14. Um, the gates of this city have the name of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel written on them. The foundations have the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So you have God's people from every point in time, Old Testament, New Testament, all brought together, all who have looked to Christ, whether in advance or, or afterwards. Three of the 12 gates face north, three face south, three east, three west. People, the, 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 this, is a, this is a kingdom which is open to the whole world. All may come from absolutely anywhere who are looking to Christ in faith. And so all who are united to him from all places and all times are brought together into the most glorious, utterly diverse, but utterly united community of redeemed men and women. And that is an integral part of the life everlasting. We're there together. We're there together. A perfect environment to live in forever, a perfect community to live with forever. And then thirdly here, a perfect prospect to live for forever. The question of what we'll actually be doing in the next life is an important one. Um, for many people, the prospect of eternity seems a bit of a mixed blessing. Um, I, I remember reading uh, Richard Dawkins being interviewed a number of years ago, and he said, uh, it's really interesting, he said, you know, I could, I could live for three or four hundred years, I wouldn't mind that, but I find the prospect of eternity absolutely appalling. It's time without end, I just find that absolutely appalling, and I thought to myself, that's because you've got nothing worth living forever for. That's the key. I, I've known people, I've known people who struggle, they find the, the whole idea of eternity just actually quite terrifying. Uh, a number of years ago, there was a radio program 
number of famous people, not believing people particularly, but not just, just famous people were asked uh, what they thought about heaven. And it's a few years ago now, but it's still quite interesting. There were three uh, very kind of consistent features in, in how they responded. Number one, they all believed that there would be a heaven. That's quite interesting in itself. Number two, they all assumed that they would be there. And number three, when they were asked to describe heaven, not one of them mentioned that God was there. It's a kind of particularly spectacular missing of the point, isn't it? Because here's the problem. Without God, there's nothing worth living forever for. Without God, eternity will not be heaven. It will be something else. It will have a different name. But what is the very essence of life everlasting? What is it? What is at the core of it? Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And the heart of the life everlasting is the prospect that we will be with God, that we will somehow enjoy complete fellowship with Him. It's an astonishing prospect if you know anything of the Bible's understanding of who God is. The searing holiness of God is such that apart from Christ, no one can look at Him and live. But in Christ, we will see Him face to face and we will know as we are known. And that's why life everlasting is not a prospect to dread. That's why those who love God, those who love Christ, will never be bored. Absolutely the opposite. Believers will have all the infinity of God to explore, and all the glory of God's redeemed people, and all the beauty of God's redeemed world, and you will never run out of things to astonish and amaze and thrill and delight you. You will need an infinity of time to explore it all. You know, even the best, even the best holiday in this world, you know, you're on holiday somewhere amazing, and you wake up in the morning, and you're like, yes, let's go, come on, things to see, things to do, and you're excited. Even the best holiday, eventually you go, you know, it's time to go home. Here, here that will have all of that together. We'll be home. With all that that means, this is, this is my true home but you'll wake up every morning just bouncing out of your bed and wanting to get to it because you have a perfect prospect to live for forever. That's why, um, I didn't write this down, but that's why C.S. Lewis ends that, um, ends the last battle, doesn't he, with, with that prospect of, you know, the children um, who have come to the end of all their stories in Narnia, and for them it's the end of the story, but actually it was, for, or rather for us, it's the end of the story, but for them it's just the beginning of the new story, the great story, in which every chapter is better than the one before. This is, what, what we're reading about is the complete fulfillment of everything we were made for. Whether we've ever seen it or not, whether we've had the eyes to see it, Everything in us was made for this. Everything in us strains towards this. We were made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our tendency in this life is to get bored after a while, but, but not here. 
the complete fulfillment of the purpose of human life, and the complete fulfillment, too, of all that God promised in the covenant that He made with His people. Do you remember that? Right from the beginning, the heart of the covenant always was, I will be your God, you will be my people. And here, Revelation 21, we see uh, that fulfilled. Those very words repeated. It is done, as verse 6 puts it. It's done. God with us. God as our God perfect environment to live in forever, a perfect community to live with forever, a perfect prospect to live for forever, and then finally and simply to sum it all up, a perfect life to live forever. Verse 4, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is surely one of the most precious promises in the whole of Scripture, isn't it? The promise of total, permanent freedom from sin and all its consequences, from corruption and disease and pain and death. Verse 4 says, He'll wipe away every tear from, from their eyes. And then the next words literally are simply this, And death shall not be. Death shall not be. How how could death be? I am resurrection. I am life. Of course death shall not be. Not in that kingdom. Not in the presence of that king. That the power and wisdom of His gospel is such that God has ensured that His victory over everything that spoils human life is absolutely total. Life eternal, life everlasting is not an improved life. It is a perfected life. Our sorrows are not lessened. They're gone. They're eliminated. Joy is not just increased. Joy is, is all-consuming. It's never-ending. What a vision that is for men and women who live in a world which is at times so painful Think of anything that has spoiled your life. Illness, broken relationships, sorrow, grief, shame, failure, pain, depression, unfulfilled hopes, death. It shall not be. Shall not be. Forever. For eternity. It shall not be. There are all sorts of things we don't know about the life everlasting, but it will be a perfect life forever. It will be joy without measure for time without limit. That's what the Bible lays before us. That's what the gospel lays before us. That's what the creed lays before us. It seems almost too good to be true. That's what we're accused of, isn't it? Pie in the sky when you die. This is just a fantasy world. It seems almost too good to be true, but only because we don't really understand how good God really is. In John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, you'll know the, the, the shape of that book, if you like. Christian, a man called Christian, leaves his home 
in the city of destruction, and uh, he has a book, and he goes in search of the heavenly city, which he has read about in the book. One of his neighbors, whose name is Pliable, tries to persuade him to return home, but Christian speaks to him of the prospect that lies ahead as described in this book. There is, he says, an endless kingdom to be inhabited, an everlasting life to be given to us, that we may inhabit that kingdom forever. There are crowns of glory to be given us, and garments that will make us shine like the sun in the firmament of heaven. There shall be no more crying nor sorrow, for he that is owner of that place will wipe all tears from our eyes. There we shall be with seraphims and cherubims, creatures that will dazzle your eyes to look on them. And there you will meet with thousands and ten thousands that have gone before us to that place, loving and holy, every one walking in the sight of God and standing in His presence with acceptance forever. Pliable says to Christian, hearing of this is enough to ravish one's heart. How are these things to be enjoyed? How shall we get to be sharers thereof? To which Christian replies, the Lord, the governor of the country, hath recorded that in this book, the substance of which is, if we be truly willing to have it, He will bestow it on us freely. Isn't that astonishing? Everything that we've just described. Joy without measure, for time without limit. If you want it, it's yours. Receive it. Take it. How do you receive it? By receiving Christ. Because it's in Him. It's all in Him. I am resurrection. I am life. Listen to these words, 1 John 5. God gave us eternal life. God gave us life everlasting, and that life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And so, if you've never received Him before, receive Him today. Believe His words, because all that He says is true. Bow the knee before Him, because He is your King. Come to His cross. See Him die there in your place for your sin. See Him endure your penalty that you might receive His glory. And like Arthur Chase, you too can have your heart filled and thrilled with the prospect of eternity. And you too can say with great joy, I believe in the life everlasting. Let's pray. God, our Father, it does stretch our minds hugely to consider these things, stretches our imagination and um, stretches our hearts. We, it is hard for our hearts to to, to grasp hold of such a, a vastness of love, such a vastness of, of holy power and, and righteous love and, and beauty and wonder. 
is hard for us. And so help us, we pray. We need your Holy Spirit within to open to us, to open to our open to our minds and our hearts, our imaginations, our taste, the, the beauty and wonder of all of this, to make it real to us, to imprint it on us, and so to lift our hearts, and to put into perspective all the things of this world, and to give to us now the, the, the beginnings of a taste of all that will be ours one day. Thank you for this. Thank you that that day reaches back into this day, that we can smell heaven on the breeze, begin to savor it, begin to learn what it will be like, even begin, in, in one sense, even begin to live now the life of heaven, a life increasingly surrendered to the King of heaven, increasingly uh, driven and directed and guided by the ways of heaven. Help us in this, we pray, and fill our hearts with confidence in You and with thankfulness for all that You've done for us and with joy in the gospel, and in the life everlasting. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.